morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Great to be in the tent. Good morning to all the live streamers. I'm delighted to be sharing the word of God with you in uh, Colleen's absence while she gets a much-deserved and much-needed sabbatical. And I'd like to say also that I've been very blessed by the, uh, the sermons about Hebrews the and the material that we've been working through. And I've been very blessed by working with this passage over the past week. And I hope, uh, I hope it will speak to you as it has um, spoken to me. So if you would read along with me, I believe it's printed in uh, our bulletin. Uh, the passage is from Hebrews chapter 11, 29 to 12, 2. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw everything off that hinders us in the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a pretty long passage. Uh, matter of fact, that's the whole sermon right there, folks. We just kind of wrap it up. You know. Would you uh, join with me and uh, let's pray that God would speak to us through this passage. Our God, we thank you so much for your word that gives life and nurtures us. We believe that you have something to say to us this morning, and we pray that you'd give us hearts to receive that message. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage we just read concerns the past, the present, and the future. In the English language, we interpret those concepts spatially. So the future is in front of us, the past is behind us, and the present, well, the present is right underneath our feet. Somewhere in the Andean highlands of South America, there's a, there's a language called Aymara that sees things a little bit differently. In the Aymara language, the future is something behind us, and the past is in front of us. 
And I would like to suggest that in the passage for today, it's more aligned with the Aymara language than the English language. The future is behind us and the past is in front of us. Now I'd warn you, do not think about that too much. <laughs> you'll start doing weird things to your head. You might start running around in circles, chasing your tail like a dog or something like that. The author of Hebrews asked the readers to look backwards to understand the present and the future. The letter is written to Hebrews and quite understandably draws reference to people of the Old Testament who exhibited great faith. Abraham, Moses, Rahab, David, Samuel, and others. But the letter does more than this. It reinterprets their lives in light of the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. So there's about a 1,400-year gap between the readers of this letter and the people that are described in the letter. And you wonder, that gap is so large, you wonder how the readers of this letter can actually be encouraged by reference to events that took place that long ago. But they are, they are encouraged. The Hebrews, the readers of the letter, are actually in a much better place than David and Rahab and Samuel and the rest because they know about Jesus. Abraham, Moses, and David, and all the other faithful servants of the Old Testament will eventually be grouped together with believers in Christ at the end of history when the kingdom comes in its fullness. But those folks in times of old are going to have to spend a lot more time in the waiting room uh, before they realize the fulfillment of all of these promises. This is a long passage and it cov covers quite a bit of ground, so I'm gonna do the, the three-point sermon thing and try to boil it down, <laughs> boil it down to three points. So first of all, the phrase by faith is used 23 times in chapter 11. Now I counted 23, you might count 22 or 24, let's not be nitpicky about it. <laughs> in each instance that the, use by, the, the phrase by faith is used, it refers to what a specific person has done based on their faith in God. I like to call these examples faith acts, faith acts actions that spring from a deep and abiding trust in the God that we cannot see. A trust that God knows what he's doing and that we have to do our part, just like Pastor Helen preached last week, we have to do our part even when we cannot see the full picture. Second point, when God's people engaged in faith acts, they experience both victory and triumph and tribulation. It's both. It leads us to believe that we can experience some of the fruits of the kingdom of God in the here and now, but we also have to participate in Christ's sufferings through trials of various kinds. It's the full package. Finally, there's a passage in our text for today that really jumps out, jumped out at me. It's kind of like a curveball that all of the examples of faith that are talked about, Moses, Rahab, Joshua, David, and the rest, did not receive what was promised during their lifetime. But they did what they had to do anyway. In the process, they demonstrated the reign of Yahweh. So faith acts display a deposit or the first fruits of God's kingdom 
in the here and now, but they're also long-term investments. I'm not going to give you a bunch of economic advice now. Don't worry about that. Look at your portfolio or any of, the, any of that stuff. Okay, let's start out by looking at this notion of a faith act in relation to the faith of Rahab. In verses 29 to 31, we're given a cluster of examples of faith, the crossing of the Red Sea by Moses and the Israelites, the crumbling of the walls of Jericho, and the faith of Rahab the harlot. What's interesting is that in this passage, the author only cares to mention Rahab by name. Not Moses, not Joshua. Of course, he's already talked about Moses, but he could have talked about Joshua a little bit more when he referenced the, the, the fall of the walls of Jericho. Rahab, you might recall, extended hospitality to Joshua's spies before the takeover of Jericho. She went so far as to hide the spies from authorities who knew they were with her. And it wasn't simply Rahab's actions that are commended in this passage, but also her declaration of faith that she makes as a Canaanite woman. For Yahweh your God is he who is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That amounted to a confession of faith in the God of Israel. And so when Joshua and the Israelites conquered Jericho as part of their conquest of Canaan, Rahab and her family were spared. Rahab's story is a big deal largely because of her triple marginality. She was a woman, a Canaanite, and a prostitute. So why does she get showcased in this passage? It's almost as though the author of Hebrews was prepping the Hebrews for a huge influx of Rahab's, of Gentiles, into the church. And um, the changing complexion of the church. People like Rahab who were unclean would be made clean, not by becoming Jewish and adopting all these Jewish customs, but by placing their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. So Rahab married a man named Salmon. And when she did so, she eventually joined a lineage that would produce King David. And by extension, produced Jesus himself. Rahab did not remain at the margins, but came right into the center. Not only of the old covenant that God made with Israel, but the new covenant that God made through Jesus. And Rahab herself engaged in a mighty faith act, an action that sprang from her belief in the God of Israel. She confessed her belief in Israel's God and extended hospitality to Joshua's spies, even uh, though that action jeopardized her own safety. Now, in the social sciences, there's a concept called a speech act. The idea of a speech act is that words are not just words. Words actually do things. Words can either bless or curse. They can encourage, they can create, or they can tear down. A faith act is like a speech act. It's an action that demonstra demonstrates what we really believe deep in our gut, where we place our trust, what we prioritize, and what we really worship. The 23 sentences in Hebrew, Hebrews 11 that begin with, by faith, are not about vague, abstract ideas. 
they are about instances of actions that flow from a deep and abiding trust in Yahweh. In the first sentence of chapter 11, you get a definition of faith. Faith, or the Greek pistos, is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it, the men and women of old received divine approval. Faith relates to a comprehensive trust of one's entire being in God. It's not just an intellectual thing, just believing that God is true. It is building your entire life around that faith. But the definition of faith in Hebrews doesn't stop there. The author introduces another big idea, and it's the idea of divine approval. In other words, faith is not just something we exercise when we face adversity, but it is a personal decision deep down in the gut that uh, forms the basis of God's approval of us. As Pastor Helen mentioned last week, God likes it when we put our trust in him and when we do what is within our sphere of responsibility. When we engage in faith acts, the Holy Spirit gives us a big high five. And it's not as though a faith act has to be something monumental, like blowing ram's horns and a big, big wall coming down. I got a high five when I, when I did the dishes the other night. <laughs> Although that might have been my mother-in-law. I was at Bev's house, Bev's parents' house last week. But so it's little things, little acts that spring from our trust that, that God is real. People say the letter of the Hebrews was not written by the Apostle Paul himself, but it seems quite consistent with Paul's teachings in Romans 4 about Abraham believing in God and it being reckoned to him as righteousness. And so all of these faith acts that are described in the letter to the Hebrews set the stage for how we place our trust in Christ and his sacrifice as the ultimate basis for God's approval of us. So now we come to the matter of triumph and tribulation. Verses 32 to 38 present starkly contrasting images of what can happen when people engage in faith acts. Some images are very triumphal and glorious. Others relate to pain, humiliation, and martyrdom. It's quite interesting that the author seems to distribute these images in a rather balanced way. In verses 33 to 34, we, we learn of faith that conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, received promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. We might think of the legacies of King David and the prophet Daniel, in Nebuchadnezzar's court in connection to those images. But the next cluster of verses paint a more dire picture of what God's people experience. You might call these the, the where do I sign up verses. <laughs> Mocking and scourging, chains and imprisonment, being stoned or sawn in half, killed by the sword, moving about destitute, ill-treated and afflicted. Not very comforting picture. These images relate to Old Testament prophets like Elijah or Elisha who lived lives of poverty 
and were dressed in sheepskins as they delivered the word of God at great cost. Or the prophet Isaiah, who is said to have been sawed in two by the evil king Manasseh. But the subtext of the passage is Jesus himself, who was despised, afflicted, and crucified on our behalf. So what does the author of Hebrews want us to do with these contrasting images of triumph and suffering? Are we left to choose door A, but not door B? Can we opt as Christians for a faith that secures blessings, but not one that requires that we be faithful in the midst of adversity? Seeing things that way misses the point. The author of this text is not asking us to engage in a cost-benefit analysis of what it means to follow Jesus. All of the examples that are provided in the letter to the Hebrews are aimed at encouraging us and strengthening our faith. And all of the examples are to be interpreted in light of God's intention of bringing our faith to maturity and completion in Christ. And by the way, when you see the word perfect or perfection in this letter, in verse 40 or in 12.2, it means completion and fulfillment of God's purposes for us as a church and as individuals. It does not refer to a legalistic uh, goal of becoming moral, morally perfect through our own endeavors. It has to do with God raising us to completion and maturity over, over a period of time. So now we come to the part of the text that almost seems like a curveball. Like, why did the author have to say that? Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That word again. Here the author is drawing a distinction between those who belong to the old and the new covenant. But he's also bringing them all together. The Old Testament folks lived out their lives without seeing the full manifestation of God's promise delivered in the form of the Messiah. But the small taste that they did experience enabled them to push back against the darkness in their day. The commentator F.F. Uh, F. Bruce summarizes it nicely. Quoting from F.F. Bruce, they and we together now enjoy unrestricted access to God through Christ as fellow citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. The better plan which God had made embraces the better hope, the better promises, the better covenant, the better sacrifices, the better and abiding possession, and the better resurrection, which is their heritage and ours. So all the past and the present and the future are coming together in this passage. So when I think of the phrase, none of them received what had been promised, I think of some of the, some of the high profile Christians of the 20th century. People like Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <coughs> These are people who listened to God, went against the flow, moved into the darkness, poured out their lives in service of an end that they could not realize during the course of their lifetime, but they just kept doing it. They kept remaining faithful. And many times when we celebrate the lives of these saints, we don't fully realize 
the internal struggles that they faced, the loneliness, the, the, the anguish, and even the struggles with faith that they experience during the course of their service to the Lord. Mother Teresa devoted her life to the service of the poorest of the poor in Kolkata, India. She and her sisters of charity took people off the streets into shelters where they could live the rest of their lives with love and dignity. We might be tempted to see Mother Teresa as this completely happy person, a spiritual rock star <coughs> who sorted everything out and just poured out her life to others. Letters that passed between Mother Teresa and her su supervisors reveal that she struggled with loneliness and feelings of abandonment during the full time that she was serving the poor of Calcutta. I'm quoting from the, uh, the priest who received her letters over many decades, she felt abandoned. She felt that God had abandoned her. No one knew of her feelings of isolation. Her longing for God felt like torture. People in the church often celebrate the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who resisted the Nazis. But Bonhoeffer did not realize his goal of stopping Hitler. He was actually unsuccessful and he was executed. He, he just did what he believed God was calling him to do. Today we celebrate Bonhoeffer's role in the resistance, but we are less aware of the internal struggles he faced and these too emerge from his own letters that he wrote while he was in prison. Wrote a number of poems and some of the language that he uses to describe himself in one of these poems called Who Am I? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage. Struggling for breath as though hands were compressed on my throat. Weary and empty at praying, at, at thinking, at making faint and ready to say farewell to it all. But Bonhoeffer, one of his big ideas is that acting is believing. Acting is believing. Saying things with your mouth is not believing. Confessing that Jesus is Lord is not believing. Acting is believing. So he was a big believer in faith acts and he was very frustrated at the church of his day <coughs> for not acting. Finally, I think of Dr. King who lived his life in pursuit of racial justice, but not, did not fully realize his dream as we are all too painfully aware of today. In his most famous speech, he said, I've seen the promised land. He had a vision of the eschaton, that final vision where the people, the races of the world would come together under one Lord. He concluded, that speech by quoting the prophet Isaiah, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So those are some high profile history making examples of people who didn't receive what was promised. Last thing I heard, there's still poverty in Kolkata. There's still racism in America. There was still Nazism after Bonhoeffer was executed. But during their lifetime, they pushed back. They pushed back, they exercised agency. And because they pushed back, people were blessed. People were blessed in the here and now. These folks were only human and they struggled internally with the circumstances in front of them. They all had horrible bosses. They all worked in adverse working conditions. 
I'll bet they all thought about a career change at some point in their life. And I'll bet they all had what I like to call beam me up Scotty moments. Now you only know what beam me up Scotty means if you've, you're familiar with the old Star Trek series. Captain Kirk is down on some planet and he's about to be devoured by some creature with a dinosaur head, a human body. And just as he's about to put the bite on Captain Kirk, Kirk pulls out his flip phone and he says, beam me up, Scotty. <clears throat> and he gets transported in a sci-fi way, gets energized to the Enterprise where he's safe around friends. He can push a button and get any food he wants out of this sliding door. I always wanted that. Have you ever had a beam me up Scotty moment? Are they getting more frequent? In Hebrews 11.5, <coughs> it says that Enoch was energized. Enoch got beamed up. That's from the new Mullumpolly revised version. <laughs> taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was attested as having pleased God. So Enoch. He got beamed up. Now, how does beam me up get translated into a prayer to God? And how does God respond to a prayer like that? Maybe it translates into longing to be with Christ, longing to be clothed with our heavenly bodies, longing for the kingdom to come in its fullness. And what does God say when we ask to be beamed up? The answer we receive in the letter to the Hebrews is no, not yet. I'm not going to beam you up. We need to stay in there. We need to stay in there because God has more work to do in us and through us. Kind of reminds us of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. My prayer is that they would not be taken out of the world, but that they would stay in the world, but be protected from the evil one. There are classes of people who have been wounded, damaged, and oppressed. Why would God not expect us to stay in, stay in the world and play a role in bringing more Rahabs into the household of faith? We're living at a time when there are fires all along the West Coast and floods in Western Europe. Western part of Germany and Belgium are submerged in a deluge. Palms being washed away. We have played a part in warming this earth up. Why would God not expect us to play a part in doing our share in caring and loving his creation? So God requires us to remain in the world as people engaged in faith acts. And the good news is that we have people who came before us who have shown us that this is indeed possible. They lived during times of much greater adversity and they remained faithful. Most notably, Jesus has gone before us and carved out a path for us to follow him in love and in power. Dunamis, God promises us power to push back power of the Holy Spirit. And through the course of our lives, we start 
collecting evidence of God's faithfulness. Kind of like an athlete starts stacking success. We begin to collect evidence of God's faithfulness to us through every step of our lives. And in the process, we become more capable of persevering in the face of adversity. So to sum up, the letter to the Hebrews reminds us that the past is truly ahead of us. The examples of faith who prod us forward and will meet us in the end when God brings his plan to fruition. And the future is definitely behind us in the form of the joy that was set before Christ as he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. So I'd like to close us with a benediction that actually comes from the last two verses of our passage for today. Would you please stand with me as I close us with this benediction? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.